Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 92. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are so happy and excited to be joined today by a man who needs no introduction, especially if you are listening to this show, because he very much paved the way for all of us. You got Don't shake your head, Mangello. Because <laughs> 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 you know it's true. Speaker, author, podcast host of... The legendary WDW Radio, Lou Mangello, joining Monoreal Radio this week. And most importantly, a friend of the show, Lou, thank you so much for giving us time. And thank you. The Venmo just came through. <laughs> no, <laughs> listen, thank you for that. Uh, I'm just going to play that back. You know, every time I feel down about myself, I'm just going to play back your intro. So thank you guys for having me. Uh, really looking forward to it. This should be fun. Yeah, we're really excited for this because this is a story. And Lou, Lou does not know this story. When Jackie and I had come up with the concept for this show, and and for those of you who have been following us for a long time, you know that we had talked about doing a podcast for years, and we didn't know exactly what we wanted to do, and we eventually honed in on Disney films because of our media backgrounds, you with, you know, especially with being on set in the filmmaking. And we talked about some of the movies that we were looking forward to doing. And one movie that I had mentioned was Summer Magic, because I feel like it's a movie that has been forgotten about. And we had launched the show in August. It'll be two years coming up this August. And Jackie said, well, you know, we're, if you want to do it as one of the first episodes, and I said, no, we have to do it with Lou Mangello. Because, <laughs> Lou, you did an episode back on October 27th, 2015. It was show number 424. We will link it in our show notes where you talked about films you must watch before a trip to Walt Disney World. Coincidentally, that episode released a week before we were taking a trip down to Disney. And I heard it, and you talked so fondly about Summer Magic, a film that I had seen but not in a very long time up until that point. And I rewatched it thanks to you, and... From that moment on, I'm like, if we have to have Lou on when we discuss this film. Oh, that's awesome. I, I love it. And uh, yeah, it's. Um, I agree about everything that you said, including it being very much overlooked, I think, um, for a lot of people, maybe for one that they've never even heard of before. Right. And, actually. Yeah. Actually, guilty. here's one right here. Sean's and, been talking <laughs> about this for the better part of a year, probably more, closer to two. And I had not even heard of this movie until one day I came home and it was here in the mail. And he's like, Lou was talking about this movie. I haven't seen it in ages. You got to watch it. And I had never even heard of it before. And unfortunately, right now, it's not on Disney+. Plus. I'm hoping that that changes. I feel like this is a movie that's tailor-made for Disney+. Plus Because Jackie and I have talked about it. And I'm curious to get your take, Lou. Part of the fun of Disney+, Plus are discovering old favorites or discovering films that you had not yet seen before. I agree. It, um, I think Disney Plus is this wonderful like treasure trove of, yes, there's the ones that you're going to go watch Endgame you know, 500 times, not saying that I'm speaking from experience, but, but it's also a place for, of discovery, and I love sort of their recommendation system 
in terms of touching on nostalgia and sentiment and, and ones that sort of are sort of coming back in. I think it's great sometimes, especially, you know, now we're recording, you know, in the quarantine, you have the opportunity to sit down with your family like, all right, let's just pick one from the 60s and go and see what happens. And the most that you're going to lose is maybe in, you know, an hour and a half of your time. Yeah. And we um, we have an outdoor projector and a little cheap screen that we bought, and we took advantage of the nice weather. And for Jackie's first viewing of Summer Magic, we sat <laughs> with the fire pit. We had a nice cocktail, some barbecue, and we put it on in the backyard. I feel like it really encompasses everything about the film just in that experience alone. It was as fully immersive as Batu. I love it, man. All you needed is Burl Ives sitting next to you on a rocking chair, and you guys would have been set. <laughs> yes, it would have been great. But um, 1963, the movie is released. For those of you who have not seen the film, you know we are going to give you the plot right now. If you want to wait until you have seen the film to hear our review, stop, because it's spoiler time. If not, here is the plot for 1963's Summer Magic, starring Haley Mills and Burl Ives. It's the turn of the century, ragtime. Margaret Carey and her children, Nancy, Gilly, and Peter, are forced to move out of Boston following the death of their father, as well as some financial hardships that followed. They move to beautiful Beulah, Maine, after Nancy wrote a very creative letter inquiring about the big yellow house that the family had once seen on a visit there. Upon their arrival, they find that the house is in serious need of a refurbishment, but thanks to the uh, home's caretaker and general store owner, Osh Popham, they are able to restore the home cheaply, much to the dismay of Osh's wife, Mariah. He also goes on to offer both Gilly and Peter jobs as a means of helping the family out. Shortly after settling in, they find out that their cousin Julia will be sent to live with them for the summer after her uh, adopted and well-to-do family also runs into financial troubles. Julia arrives and harshly criticizes the town, her family, and the house that they live in. As time moves on, the Carries realize that they will not have enough money to improve the home and continue living in it, but Osh tells them that he had convinced the homeowner, Tom Hamilton, to allow them to live rent-free in exchange for the work that they have done, with the only request being that by Halloween they properly hang a portrait of his mother, whom has long since passed away, um and should be honored properly. Uh, of course, this story isn't true, but the Carries believe it and agree to the terms. Osh plants a fake portrait in the Dutch oven of the home, and Mariah decides that she's going to tell the Carries the truth. As she goes to the house to tell them, um, Osh is overhearing everything, and before she can finish telling the story, he uh, he he basically lies again, and he fakes a fall off of a ladder, claiming that he has injured his leg and forces Mariah to take him home. After church the following Sunday, Beulah is introduced to the new school teacher straight from Brown University, Charles Bryant. Smitten with the new school teacher, Nancy and Julia offer to invite him over to the home for a lawn party. Inevitably, Nancy does all of the work while Julia lands the attention and the affection of Charles. After the party, an angry Nancy tells Julia the truth about why her adoptive 
family, the Fergusons, dumped her on the Carries for the summer because Julia didn't know about these financial problems. And Nancy knew, wasn't supposed to say anything, and tells her anyway, and immediately regrets it after she sees how upset Julia has become. Mrs. Carey intervenes and assures Julia that her family loved her and that their finances have improved and they are ready to take her back. Nancy begs Julia to stay, which Julia agrees to. She also tells Nancy the truth about her life and admits to making her own clothes, as opposed to having them bought for her from the finest clothing makers in Paris, and their relationship is eventually healed. As the day of the Halloween party arrives, this is the party in which they're going to hang the portrait, Osh's daughter, Lolly Joy, who is attending the party with Gilly, shows Nancy and Julia the horrific dress that her mother made for her. The girls offer to fix it for her, as well as instruct her on how to properly use her femininity. On the day of the party, the real Tom Hamilton arrives to see that, unbeknownst to him, the Carries have moved in and renovated the home. Nancy, not knowing who he is, invites him to the party. He heads to the store to ask Osh what's happening, and Osh admits that he was lying, um, and he claims that he was taken aback by how good-hearted and in need the Carries were. As the party begins, Julia is paired with Charles, Gilly with Lolly Joy, but Nancy does not have a date. Tom arrives and escorts her to the party. He is infuriated when his mother's quote-unquote portrait is not his mother at all. Rather, it's really just an old hag, for a lack of a better term. But in spite of it all, he review, uh, reveals his true identity as Tom Hamilton and asks Nancy to dance with him. Osh then tells Mariah that things always work out in the end. I want to talk to you for a second, Jackie, because when we watched this film for the first time, you said something very poignant that was not just poignant, but was completely spot on in terms of fact when you compared this film to another film that had come out around the same time. Well, Lou probably doesn't know this, but I'm a classic Hollywood nut. And um, I love Judy Garland. So immediately when I saw this, I thought, meet me in St. Louis. It's got that classic feel. And what I came to find during my research was that the writer of the screenplay for Summer Magic actually had a hand in Meet Me in St. Louis because it was her short stories that that film is based off of. So they didn't let her write that screenplay, but instead she got to do this one. And Meet Me in St. Louis, the difference is that it focuses on the span of a year, whereas this is just giving you the little slice of summer and what happens to the Carey family. So from the jump... Time rag. You loved that. Yeah. It is a classic period piece. It is that slice of Americana that I think we all love to see in these classic Hollywood films. And immediately, I think the dialogue between the kids, all right, between the three young actors, I think it's authentic. And I think it gives you a real feel for who the Carries are as a family. Definitely. You know, like you said, from the, the opening credits and opening scene, I had this smile on my face and dare I even say a little bit of a, of a lump in my throat. I love the time rag, but from a 30,000 foot view and even from, like you said, from the very beginning, summer magic just encompasses 
simpler times, which I think a lot of us, you know, sometimes wish we could go back to. And I mean simpler times both in the movie and when the movie was made um, in, in the 60s. And there, there was something about that from the very beginning um, really caught me and made me excited to watch it again. I also think that that's it's sort of poetic that you say it that way because, I mean, make no mistake about it. There's no benefit at all to what's happening in the world right now. However, you can certainly say that because of this quarantine that we have been in for so many months, in a weird sort of way, it's almost a step into those simpler times because now you're, and it's sad to say, but everybody is forced together. The family unit is forced back together. I know Mangello doesn't have this problem because <laughs> his family is is always together. And if you guys haven't listened to a food review with the kids and Deanna, you have to go and listen to it because they're spectacular. But I hate to say it, but I feel like lose a situation that is so few and far between. I think people are so invested in what's on that little personal entertainment device in my hand and in my pocket and what's going on on my video game device that we don't take the time to sit and enjoy the simpler times. And I feel like that's sort of what's been going on more recently. Yeah, and I think I think movies like this afford us... I, you know, I look, I'm always going to make lemonade from from lemons, right? So I looked at, at quarantine and everything's going on as opportunity for families and friends to, if you're quarantined together, to physically get together, and if not, even sort of get together via distance. And the sort of feel-good movies that Disney produced during this time period, I think are ones that allow us and afford us the opportunity to maybe reconnect or even connect in ways we hadn't done before. And I think almost to a certain degree, that's why Walt decided to make this a full-length motion picture as opposed to what it was originally conceived of, which right. was something for the wonderful The Color TV series. He wanted, I think I, I almost envision Walt wanting families to not just gather around the TV but I can see Walt's, you know, hoping people will go to see a matinee, you know, together in the, in the 60s. Sure. And, I mean, would it have worked that way? I think you certainly could have, but I feel like you would have lost a lot of the heart in this film. Because there's a lot that happens, I think, subtly. For example, as we get through this opening scene and we kind of further um, develop here, the score that plays musically... As that piano is taken out of that house, I think it acts um, almost as a narrator within itself. But the fact that there was a piano swap, right, because they were selling the grand piano off because the Carries had no money and they couldn't afford to stay in Boston. And they could only afford to live for $50 a month. <laughs> $50 a month. It's almost as if they worked in radio. So... <laughs> <laughs> but but the piano meant so much to the kids and specifically to Gilly because he wanted to be a composer that Mrs. Carey actually worked out it's $150 and a swap for a player piano because now at this point we haven't even seen Mrs. Carey on screen but already we know that even though they're in a financial bind she's willing to give a little up for her kids and I think that that paints a beautiful picture of who gets fleshed out as the movie goes on is a really strong character. Well, that's what's so interesting to me about it because they 
do such a great job of setting up such a happy time and it's juxtaposed against this financial hardship. And what really gets glossed over is that they're in this situation because the father has passed away. And they do mention it, but let's be honest, this is a Disney movie. They just mention it. That's it. There's no cause. There's no nothing. And I was kind of surprised that Disney really didn't like squeeze all the juice out of that lime like they normally do. Um, yes and no. I, I think that in, in this case, I mean, it's certainly not Bambi, where that's very deliberate. <laughs> exactly. um, but I think in this film, because because it was something that was adapted originally for the wonderful world of color, I think that they sort of had the groundwork laid for the story. And I think because it's a feel-good film, they didn't really want to linger on that so much. It works for Bambi because there was shock value in it, and they were trying to get a message across. But I feel like here... I don't think it would have been necessary. Lou, I'm interested in your take on that as well. Yeah, I, I don't think that you need to look at, obviously, you know, it's a Disney movie, so a parent has to die somewhere along the, the line. Um, and you wonder if that's just something that, you know, why that's been in every movie. But, and I don't think that you need, you know, Walt always talked about not painting, not laying things out with a trowel. It, it is sort of the, the fact of the matter and that you don't really need much in the term of, laying the groundwork as to how or why that happened. And and just quickly going back to the point of, I, I agree, I don't think it necessarily would have worked for Wonderful World of Color because I think this movie has to be taken as a whole. And what I mean by that is I can't imagine sort of cutting this up and having this cliffhanger moment in Summer Magic that you'd have to come back for next week. But once you're done with the movie, it really sort of ties everything up in a nice bow. And that's why I think it worked better as a theatrical release as opposed to a TV series. Absolutely. I also think that what you also get early on here in the film is the ebb and flow. I think that immediately you see that the pacing is good, but they do a great job of playing with emotion a little bit, and it it never takes itself too seriously, but it never gets too silly. You know, you, you come off of this heartbreaking moment where the kids at least temporarily lose their piano. We know that they've lost their father. We know that they've lost their money. And then they jump in with a few songs like Flitter, and, and we'll talk about the, the songs in just a little while here. But the ebb and flow comes from now. Nancy has told them that she has reached out to Asha Popham, and she reads the letter out loud that was written, or I think Mrs. Carey reads it. It's hilarious, the things that she puts in this letter. (laughs) This is probably one of my favorite parts of the movie. The embellishments of what she was telling the Pophams were were hysterical. Yeah, the baby boy with the rickets. (laughs) (laughs) The the invalid son. (laughs) Trying to really sell this because she so desperately wanted that big yellow house. And you come off of flittering, it makes you feel great. But you still feel for them and you're laughing. You know, the the story really does, I think, do a good job throughout the entire film of kind of having that roller coaster of emotions. And I think that this was a really strong start for this movie. Well, I think, too, that that's a testament to Helly Mills' performance because she really carries that. And she's the driving force of staying positive in this situation. This was also her fourth film that she had made with Walt Disney. So I think by this point, she, I mean, she's a talented actress. She's a Disney legend. But I think by this point, 
she really knew exactly how this part needed to be played. Yeah, and you definitely see her start to mature as an actress. She went from very cute child to this enchanting leading lady. Yeah, I agree. I was really impressed going back and not having again admittedly seen it in, yikes, decades. Just how good she was at that age, not just carrying the film as as the the star of it, but how well she played off of, you know, Burl Ives' character and so many of the others. Uh, look, Burl Ives is, 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 I think, phenomenal in this and every other one. Like, of all the people I want to be friends with, like, I want to just hang out, you know, and sit, sit – I want to sit on the porch on a summer night yep. um, with Burl Ives. Yeah, and it's not long until we get introduced to him because now we have set off for Beulah and Lou – this is where I am so happy. Well, for a number of reasons, I'm happy that you're here. But this specifically, you may as well have taken cameras into Disneyland and shot Main Street USA the way that Beulah is designed. And that was done on the Disney backlot in Burbank. But, you know, we're still we're here on Long Island. You are obviously in the backyard of the Magic Kingdom. So when you go back and you watch this film how much of what they did for Beulah stands out to you even more so when you walk down Main Street? From the initial beats of the film, I had a smile on my face because the first place I was transported to was Main Street USA, not just because of the visuals, and I know we'll, we'll talk about it later, but the music. Because if you spend as much time on Main Street USA as, as I have over the years, because I love it so much, the background music is as much of a character and an attraction and a detail of Main Street USA as, as anything else that you see, interact with, hear, or feel. So I loved hearing those songs again, but in this context. And then when you look at the storefronts and you look, it does, it, it brought me right back to, to Main Street USA. And, and, and I know over the years, one of my favorite details to show people as I walk them down is when you go to the Emporium on Main Street in, in Walt Disney World, I think it's there in Disneyland too, at that corner entrance, the vignette windows, the first two says Osh Popham Proprietor. And 99% of the people I ask who that is, usually in exchange if they get it right for like a Dole Whip, just because I want a Dole Whip myself, <laughs> most of them don't get it because they don't know and they don't know the connection and, and it's too bad and it's a great way to introduce them to um, the character uh, to Burl Lives and, and obviously the film. No, I wouldn't have known it because I had never seen it. But my, my Burl Lives movie was so dear to my heart. So that definitely, you know, he wasn't lost as far as me growing up with him in Disney films. You having been a first timer watching this movie for the first time this week, did you get the same feeling of that Main Street USA watching them enter beautiful Beulah? Absolutely. I mean, it definitely encompassed the park, but I think bigger picture, it encompasses Walt's ideals because that's what he based Main Street USA off of, right? It was his home in Marceline, Missouri. And I think what struck me about it, too, was the look of that yellow house. It's so idyllic. It's so Americana. It's perfect. Yeah, let's talk about the yellow house for a minute, because what's amazing about the yellow house is for all intents and purposes, it's an inanimate object. It doesn't speak, it doesn't move, it doesn't have emotions, but that house acts as if it is the sixth member of the Carey family, once you do get Julia involved. Because 
there's just something about the way that the set is dressed. There's a way that they discuss the house itself, the memories they had of taking the trip there with their father and seeing how the house has become dilapidated, that the house within itself feels like another character. And as they work on it and as they build it back up into the beautiful house that it once was, I think it almost fleshes out like it's another person in the film. Definitely. I think it also reflects the healing process from the loss of their father. Yeah, I was gonna say it, it grounds the family, right? And it and I think it's interesting how um, how quickly the family is able to make that house their home. It doesn't matter what it looks like or or what or who is inside. But I, I sort of got that immediately. Um, and you're right. I think that's a great way to put it. The house sort of being an additional, not just an additional character, but an additional member of the family. And I had my Walt Disney World moment, too, admittedly, when she walks through the kitchen and she goes to pump that water and nothing comes out of it immediately. And I go, you know, Sarah, John would have told you we don't have to prime those pipes anymore. <laughs> and then we get Osh Popham, Burl Ives, right? And as he immediately calls out every single one of those children as Gilly runs up the stairs where there's the invalid boy and Peter is outside <laughs> swinging upside down from a tree. He goes, there's the rickety baby. It's absolutely fantastic. And I think what I like most about his dialogue here as he really starts to be fleshed out as a character, because I think in his introduction, he's probably the most likable character in the film. Um, I'm just putting that out there now. He has a line, because I love his sense of humor, where he's, he, you know, his daughter, Lolly Joy, is in the house as well. She's very shy, she's very reserved. You can tell she's never left Beulah before, right? And he introduces her and, sa and he says, she'd be more like me, but her mom won't let her. And it's such a simple little line to get a chuckle out of you, but I think it really does a lot in fleshing him out i feel like you know him right away even though you've only had very 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 little screen time with him what i love about him too is within the next five or so minutes of screen time we learn that he's the postmaster he's the constable he's got multiple jobs in town and really he's like judge jury and executioner when it comes to them staying in this house you know there are some people i think that you don't even need to meet in person but you can just see and you have this immediate reaction to and and love of and and from the minute Burl Ives is on screen, like I love this character. And I wasn't kidding. Like I felt I was like, I'm saying to myself on my couch, like, I want to be friends with Burl Ives. Like he just looks like the nicest, grandfatherly, warm, caring gentleman. Um, you know, he embodies all the qualities that, you know, we want other people to have and, and we we hope we have in ourselves. And look, he's always going to be Frosty the Snowman to me, but right. um, <laughs> but there is. There's something incredibly, incredibly endearing about him. And that's why in the next scene of this film where we get introduced to Mariah, other than her being very funny, you start to get conflicted because you don't really know if you can trust Osh Popham or not. Uh, you know it's an innocent enough film, but there's just that little bit of doubt, and it makes him even more intriguing. Definitely. And she's such an interesting character to me because she's anti-Osh and she's pretty much anti-everything Disney represents because she says that he's too hopeful. How can you be too hopeful, especially in a film like this? Yeah, I was like, how did you two get together? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
It's like, <laughs> what what kind of arranged marriage was this? <laughs> well, Tinder back then really was just not. It was not what it is today. <laughs> No, not at all. <laughs> um, because, the, I, mean, she, I mean, yeah, it fleshes him out, but she's so dosh darn mean to the guy. <laughs> you know, you like the carries because they're the only ones who aren't sick of your stories. And your parents said this about you. It's like, wow, like, she's really got it out for him. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's given the store away. But, I mean, she's really got it out for this guy. The other thing, and I don't want to pick it apart too much, but I think it was a very interesting casting choice. And, you know, I, I love that it doesn't reflect ageism in Hollywood because she is an older actress, but it is a bit hard to believe that she has children that young. And especially it's driven home a little bit by the fact that she is kind of mean to him and she is always ragging on him. She almost gets more of like a a grandmotherly character, like an older, older crotchety grandma. And I feel like that's a little disconnected from her children. I almost felt like it made Burl Ives' star shine a little bit brighter. Like you almost like him more because that is what he is dealing with as well. And I did it. it for some reason, it made him more likable um, because that is what he, you know, is, um, I don't want to say battling with, but, <laughs> but is dealing with on a daily basis. Definitely more humor, too, because yes. he's not going to listen to her. He's going to do what he wants anyway. Yeah, and he he is very upfront about that from the jump. And I think, Lou, what you said, it's, I mean, I couldn't have said it any better myself because, you know, again, at the risk of repeating myself, I do think this movie flows very well. I think it's got this outstanding pacing because, you're right, you come off of this scene where she's just knocking this guy down. It makes him more endearing. It makes him more lovable. And after that, you get the haircut scene with Peter. And, you know, Peter goes and because he's being picked on because he had that long Boston hair. Toaster strudel. Yeah, you, as you said, he, the toaster strudel <laughs> kid. Um, and he had his Buster Brown suit on and he was getting picked on because he didn't fit in in Maine. And, and that's a scene... That's a scene. I want, uh, we're going to talk about that dialogue in a minute. But he goes and he he steals a haircut because he wants to look like the other boys. And Burl Ives offers him a job in exchange for the twenty five cents that it would have cost him to get the haircut. And he's like, "Oh, gee, Osh, now I can pay for my haircut." And he's like, yeah, "And you know that barber's got six mouths to feed. He has to cut a whole hair of, to get that quarter." So. He's a generous character. We already know that he's generous, but he's also got this paternal instinct. And, and for the for the carries that lack that paternal figure in their life up to this point, it's amazing that he has taken to them so quickly and he's willing to teach Peter this lesson. I also love that he trusts him to do the right thing once he gives him the money. I think that speaks volumes to Ash Popham's character. Like you said, he's that instant grandfather to everybody uh, when you meet him. And and I think, you know, it was interesting, too, because even back then they were bullies and they were mean kids. And the first thing that that Osh does is almost sort of it turns it around for him. It empowers him. It teaches him a valuable lesson so that there is a positive takeaway from that negative incident and from what he did wrong. So he learns his lesson and is able to, you know, hopefully be better on the opposite side of it. Right. This is one of those scenes that I wonder 
modern audiences, modern moviegoers, can they put aside the fact that for all intents and purposes, this is a period piece that was made over 50 years ago? Because I think we live in a society, we've said it on this show, that is very now hyper sensitive, hyper aware of the things that are going on around them. And the entire premise of this scene is he's bullied for the length of his hair. And he, you know, Peter goes so far as to say, nobody will hire me because I look like a girl. It's meant in the most harmless way possible. It's it's not meant to offend anybody. But I do wonder if a modern audience is going to see that and not be able to differentiate the fact that it's a movie that's pushing 60 years old about a you know and it's a story that's really turn of the century and they won't see the innocence of it i think they will because of the way that they layered the lessons they're they're saying that you know you don't want to hire somebody based on what they look like and peter still feels bullied and because ash doesn't punish him he doesn't discipline him he really teaches the lesson by guilting him almost, I think there's more of a takeaway than if you would have just seen him yelling or dragging Peter home to his mother and being like, look what your son did. Or, or dragging him into the barbershop and saying, hey, this is the... I, again, I think you can you can strip away when the film was made and some of the dialogue. And as a parent and as a, as a child, you, you too can pull the lesson from it. Absolutely. Let's talk about Sam the dog because now Sam gets introduced into the house because Peter brings him home because there's a, a, a rich man who's leaving town and they needed to board the dog. Um, and I love Sam. He's funny, but he really is the, the scenes where he comes in and he just destroys a house. It is so unrealistic. I mean, Walt has chewed up a few pillows and things and I've had a few dogs in, in my life that have done that. Um, but this is like the crazy dog that you've seen in every single film, right? It also does take that role. And we've talked this, talked about it on the show before when we reviewed Lady and the Tramp, how different dogs were treated where they are. And granted, warmer weather environments are a little bit different, but they are put outside in a dog house. Now here it's Maine. The summer you can get away with it. The rest of the year you can't, but it's, one thing to see it in an animation when Lady is also given a voice and that's part of the whole conflict with her being portrayed as, um, you know, the debutante. Yeah. But here, just to see this dog who's kind of dirty, he's like a mangy mutt, just cast out in the house. It was heartbreaking. And I, I love Peter for, for giving him a means to get in every night. Yeah, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess. I, again, I hadn't seen this movie in, in ages, when I saw it again and I was watching the scene with the dog and just how well trained the dog was to go exactly with – I'm like, it's a dude in a dog suit. There's no <laughs> way like, – there's no way that that dog is able to do and sort of hit those beats and marks. There's one part where he jumps up on the table, knocks something off. They catch it and he runs off. I'm like, that is so well choreographed. There's no way that's a real dog. It's Peter Mayhew's first role. <laughs> <laughs> um. I also love in this scene, now that they've, they get the, the uh, terror that is Sam under control, and here comes Osh Popham with his special delivery for Mrs. Carey. And now we've gone from, okay, we got through that, we're back to Angelic, oh, we're in the big, beautiful yellow house, oh, no, Julia's coming. So, <laughs> here we go again with the roller coaster, but everything about this scene, I think, is spectacular, because I love how Julia 
a, a character you've never seen. We're introduced to her soon, and you can never forget her once you've met her. Um, she's fleshed out strictly through dialogue and through music. Super relatable, too, because everybody's got that one family member, right, where it's like, you love them, but when you know they're coming to visit, you're not thrilled. <laughs> and, you know, Summer Magic is a film, like, with no villain, right? There's there's nobody to, to dislike, and when she comes on, you're like, oh, this is the one I'm not going to dislike. Here's sort of the, the anti-hero when she comes in, and you're right, sort of the exposition of how her... Her story is told, and then again later on, as as some other things are revealed, you know she becomes, and things that she does make her a, a little bit more redeeming. But I'm like, oh, I don't like this one. I don't, like, <laughs> I didn't like this cousin at all when I first met her. Nancy also has a really interesting line too in the scene where, when they learn she's coming to stay, she says, "The more, the hungrier." So it kind of, you know, for as much as it's like, great, we have this house and we have a dog now and everything's under control, it sort of drags you right back down to know that there's still problems that they're up against. Right, and it goes to show that as happy as they are to extend that helping hand for other people because we know that the Carries are a very giving group, they're not so inclined to do the same thing for Julia. And... That's made evidently clear, and you don't feel bad for Julia because no. the minute she gets on screen, the minute she arrives in Beulah, she looks out of place, she acts out of place. It's almost to the point of being over the top, but I have to say, the portrayal is restrained just enough to the point where it isn't too over the top or too kitschy. It's also very well written because it's all coming out in the dialogue where it's French this and Mrs. Ferguson that. It's very funny. Yeah, and you almost, you know, there's, it, it reminds me, and I, and I can't think specifically of, you know, characters who are bragging so much that their stories end up, you know, you find out that they're, they're not true. This is the most obscure reference. I don't know why I thought about it. There's an episode of The Twilight Zone where this guy Figby is telling all these stories about all the things that he did and all the places that he went to people who ended up being from another planet. Yes. And I'm like, he, she sounds like Figby and these stories can't <laughs> all be a hundred percent true. Yeah. I love when she gets off of the, uh, she gets out of that car and Peter goes, she's not knock need. <laughs> yeah. They're completely outed in that moment. One of those kids say the darndest things immediately. And, and they go on to tease her a bit but because she's not totally fleshed out yet, you don't really feel so bad for her. I love how they sort of play up on how snide she is with everything because she's talking about, oh, they never paved this road. They're like, well, it's not really a road. It's made of dirt. It's just a dirt path. And like, she doesn't understand that. She doesn't understand that they don't have indoor plumbing and that she's got to carry hot water up flights of <laughs> stairs and she wants to be bathed in the kitchen. So when they play up on that, and it's an owl outside, and, and especially at Julia's age, right? She's she's already been through school. In theory, you have heard an owl before. She has no idea what it is. They have her convinced it's this huge, scary, horrible beast, and they need to lock all the doors and lock all the windows. So playing off of that fear is funny enough. And I've already heard enough about Gladys Ferguson, and she's only been on the screen for two minutes. But it makes the gag with the dog even better. 
it's a really great setup because you think it's done. You think it's done in that beat where Peter gets him up into the room and they fall asleep and that's it. So I was not expecting at all for it to be a running joke. It's brilliant. I, was, I love how you thought it was a little throwaway, but it ended up sort of being continued on. Right. And I think, I mean, how many movies have you seen just over the course of cinema? And I, I hate to say it, but I think more now than ever, because I think that in in general, I think screenwriting by and large, has gotten very sloppy. You don't see movies made like this. Any- they don't make them like they used to, but that's the <laughs> truth. A lot of times, especially with comedies, they don't show restraint with ongoing gags. And I think that a lot of the times, they just kind of get beaten to death. And to the- When you've heard it for the fourth, fifth, sixth time, 90 minutes into a movie, it's no longer funny. They knew how to do it just enough here. Exactly. Let's talk about the scene where Mariah has decided that she's going to out Ash for his lies because she knows that Tom Hamilton has no idea that these people are in this house, right? And she shows up while Ash is doing his pro bono work on the home, which further (laughs) aggravates her, right? And the airing of her grievances about Ash, she's Brutal. I, it's not that we don't already know this, but the interesting juxtaposition in this scene is that as she's going on and on and on and really just ragging on him, he's got this smirk on his face like, yeah, I did all of those things. <laughs> and it makes what happens next even better because now he fakes falling off this ladder. He fakes this injury to get out of this situation But it's sort of interesting because while you're happy he got away unscathed and while the story is still holding up, he's lying to protect his lies. I don't know. Maybe for me, it invokes a very interesting, I could just say, it's an interesting feeling. That's that's the only way that I could put it. Because I'm happy for him, but at the same time, it's not as moral as he usually is. Well, I think that's kind of the interesting thing is that he is such a moral character, but you see that their family life is not perfect because he's lying to her. She's being horrible to him. And that's probably why he gravitates to the carry so much. See, I saw what he did completely the opposite way. I think because remember, he serves to gain nothing from these lies. He's doing whatever he has to do to protect the carries so, so much so that he makes up this, you know, ongoing, ever growing snow, snowball full of untruths. Right. I'm almost, I almost feel bad calling it lie. Cause it's bro lives. He doesn't lie, <laughs> but like he, he's make up all these stories. And then I love, loved, loved the, the quote unquote self-sacrifice of faking his own fall to protect them. Right. He was afraid that they were the ones who were going to get, thrown out or in trouble and it was less about him than it was about the other people and that's sort of the, the feeling that I've always gotten from Osh was he is so generous and giving towards others at, at any expense even for maybe his own morality it's one of the reasons why I like and want to be friends with him I'm going to keep saying it I want to be friends <laughs> with Osh Potvin. that's the thing I mean they don't really give you a lot of reason why he's doing this for the carries other than that he's just a good person. But I love that this sets up the idea of 
the mysterious portrait, the, the note from Tom Hamilton and the portrait of his mother and hanging that in the home. Yes. And as we continue to hear more about this mysterious character who doesn't really exist and we hear more about Hamilton who up until this point in time we do not see we do not know if he truly exists or if, or if he's ever going to show up um, even though we, we know that he eventually does this also introduces another very intriguing character and that is the new school teacher Charles Bryant from Brown University and I love the dialogue between Nancy and Julia as they're devising this plan to have him over for this lawn party and they're going to invite everybody and you can see that their wheels are turning mutually and they both have the same end game I mean, and you as, as the viewer know only one of them is going to walk away with this guy on their arm right? But I think the dialogue and I think what happens in the scene really takes off when you get to the moment where they're actually setting up for the party. And it was Julia who suggested they do it. This was Julia's idea. Who's the one setting it up? It's Nancy. And she even says to Nancy, oh, you should run a comb through your hair. You look exhausted. It's just so condescending. But the dialogue is so good. Yeah, again, that's that's brilliant writing because it's in very few lines they're able to take such deep digs uh, but I love the competition here that starts between Nancy and Julia especially because you know like we were talking about before they bring it full circle and they really deliver on it when it comes to a head later even the blocking if you go back and watch the blocking when they're first scheming their plan to get the school teacher over and like well we might as well make, we better just make it a whole big party but let's make sure he can come first they're very close together, and as they start making plans, they're walking away, and the, I almost like looked closely to see – it almost looked like they were holding hands. Like they had finally sort of come together and bonded, and then everything – you know, cut to the actual um, – the exterior shot, and all of a sudden now they're, they're on opposing sides because they're, they're both coming to the realization like, wait a minute, we didn't really think this – you know, there's only one of him and two of us, and there's this very – uncomfortable, awkward exchanges between them. Um, and again, very condescending towards Nancy. And, and, you know, again, there's that huge, huge sense of sympathy for her because she's been so well-intentioned and you want her to win, right? You want her to sort of, to, to sort of win this thing and you see that she's not. And there's even a few scenes again where even she's sitting on the porch and she just looks so sad and so defeated uh, and so somber like... You know, she's been trying to do all these things for the benefit of everybody else. And the one thing she wanted, she can't even have for herself. Right. But there's a moment where, you know, you're going to laugh. It reminds me of blank check. Hear me out. <laughs> Am I going to laugh? Yes, you will. Hear me out. Because I think Lou knows exactly where I'm going with this. <laughs> she's very much out of place in regards to... She is a child, because Nancy is. She's the oldest of the Carries, though she is still a child. And they've acknowledged that this is going to be her school teacher. How is this any different than when Preston, at the age of 11, is pursuing Shay, the bank teller, who he does not know is an FBI agent, but we all know is a full-grown woman? 
And that's where you really start to feel sympathetic towards them as well, because similar to how you feel bad for Preston, who's clearly in over his head, but he doesn't realize it, and you know that he should, I kind of get the same thing here for Nancy. I'll give you that as far as the age difference being less than appropriate. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're definitely not wrong, but I think it serves to show how mature Nancy is, or immature in this case, because she's had to deal with so many adult problems. She's so involved in the financial aspects of her family, and it just kind of knocks her down a peg to show you that she's still just a kid. She's a girl with a crush. Listen, I'm not going to lie. I had 1984 Van Halen's Hot for Teacher playing in a ragtime <laughs> version in the back of my head. <laughs> the Sherman brothers missed their opportunity on that one. Yeah, well, I don't know that they would have drawn a lot of inspiration from David Lee Roth, though it would have been interesting. Could you imagine that super group of Richard Sherman playing with David Lee Roth? Well, I mean, if I they're going to remake this for Disney Plus, let's do it. Yeah, I'm let's all about rescore it with David Lee yeah, Roth. At this point, why not? Right. They get through the party. They get through the scene on the front porch. And man, this is Julia's most brutal scene. Right. Because she's so mean spirited towards Nancy. She knows that she stole Charles away from her. And I don't really start to feel bad in, in spite of the fact that I should when Nancy, as rude as it was, outs the truth about the Fergusons. You're totally set up for Julia to get her comeuppance. You want to see Nancy start tearing into her, but Nancy hits below the belt. That's rough. It's a rough scene. Yeah, like I like you said, you know that she's going to fire back somehow, but you know, it's the worst possible thing she could say. It's like telling a kid your parents don't love you because you're mad that, you know, that she stole your man and that's really what it, it sort of comes down to and and it's a very impactful moment. Um it it's relatively quick how it happens, but you know, you put yourself all of a sudden in Julia's stead and imagine, you know, the impact that that must have on her. Right. And the other interesting thing about this scene is that Nancy calls out Julia for being phony and pretending to be dumb. And Julia looks at her with a smirk and goes, I am dumb. And she's like, no, you're not. And she gets very defensive about it. She's like, yes, I am. Which is typically not something you'd see now. I mean, think... Looks, you don't even have to go that far back. Look at the film we reviewed last week. We talked about Black Panther. That was the movie that popped up in our little Disney Plus roulette that we played. And in that film, they were so careful and so deliberate in making sure that they had surrounded him with really strong female characters that could really hold their own and they were warriors and now you flash back to this Julia who's intentionally trying to be dumb to win a boy over well that also you know we're going to talk about the music a little bit later that really comes across in the femininity song as well yeah and the idea of of pretending to be dumb as um, a defense or or a crutch you know you don't like to see it it's um, when you know that she's not as, as stupid as she claims to be um 
I didn't it, like it for her character um, to do that because, like she was saying, like you're not dumb, you're not stupid. Stop saying that about yourself or, or thinking that to use as a crutch. There's right. something sort of tongue-in-cheek about it, too, because she is smart enough to know that she's got to play dumb. And that's where that dialogue would have gotten a little bit better when she smirks and goes, I am dumb. You could have not even responded to that because we all know that she's saying it sarcastically. The fact that she comes back and defends the fact that she's dumb, I think, waters down what is otherwise a strong character. Whether you like her or not, Julia is a strong character. They needed a little something else there to show that she had the upper hand and she knew exactly what she was doing. Yeah, just it, it's just interesting to to watch how the relationship between the two evolves and changes and eventually starts to to grow closer. Right, especially when she outs herself at the end of this scene saying, I'll never talk about Gladys Ferguson again, and none of my clothes came from French designers. They're not the greatest French materials. I made these myself. I make my own clothes. Like, you know, she becomes so much more endearing at that point, but because we know that she's phony and that she has drummed up all of these lies and she just did it with Charles, it would have made more sense if she would have just continued to play off of the fact that I know I lied and I know what I'm doing. What I find really interesting there, too, is before they reconcile, they give her the choice of staying with the family or going back to the Fergusons. I think that's another lie, actually, on the part of Mrs. Carey, because she's like, oh, I just received word that you can go back. And she puts the ball in her court because she knows that she's going to stay. But I don't think that there was another letter. I think there's a lot of letters with white lies. That's a <laughs> common thread throughout this movie. Right. And then the scene ends with good night, sisters. And mm -hmm. th now they have very quickly reconciled because Nancy feels terrible for what she has done. We haven't mentioned Digby yet. Because that's Asha's son. Gilly takes his job driving the truck. And, and, and Digby has left because he wanted to go to the city to make money because he was only making $3 a week as an intern at the radio station. Making $3 a week <laughs> um, with his father and said, I can make that in a day. And he's immediately come back and he's fed up with the city life and he's happy to be back in town and i i like the fact that they did that here because it's sort of like a euphemism for the entire film i think it also represents walt really because it it's that he embodies that classic nostalgia versus progress argument i don't know what it is about michael j pollard that i just like so much um there's something that's that's very memorable about him and his characters I, and i again obscure reference i remember Probably one of the first times I ever saw him was when he was portraying a child in uh, uh, the original Star Trek series when there was a planet full of of children um, and they were talking about the Grups and and I just thought he was really really good and as we've I've continued to see him over the years I smiled again as I saw him in in it obviously a much younger state but I I liked him and and again that this idea of wanting to spread his wings a little bit I. When I saw that happening, I put myself in Osh Popham's seat, figuratively, as I have kids that are starting to get older. Like, I dread those conversations, and I applauded or felt bad for Osh as to how well he took it and how supportive he was of him. Let's talk about, as the film is wrapping up here, the car pulls up to the house as they're getting ready for this Halloween party. And you know right away that this is Tom Hamilton. For sure. Right? You know right away who it is and I think that 
he plays it off so well, and it kind of goes. He's not lying. He's so much. He's kind of just lying through omission because he's not telling them who he is when he gets to the house. And I think we saw a poster for this film that said the music, the romance, and the mystery. The mystery. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I guess this is the mystery of summer magic. I mean, I understand that they're trying to market the film and and that generous man who saves family is not going to sell a DVD quite the same way mystery does. And there is a little bit of mystery in a sense of you don't know how he's going to react. He's either going to be really, really mad or really, really generous. And up until really the very, very end, you still don't know which side of the fence he's on. Does that make this a mystery in a classic sense? No, not really. But you you don't really need it in a film like this. Same way that um, with Osh Popham's character, we don't really know why he's so inclined to help the family other than that he's a nice guy. But again, you, you just don't need it to move the story forward and you can just enjoy it for what it is. See, I liked, I, I felt that it was a little bit of a twist when he showed up because I think when you hear, you know, this man who owned these homes and he's off in China, I envisioned it being an older gentleman who was going to come back and maybe he was either going to be you know, super, super sweet and generous like Osh Popham or maybe, you know, some grumpy old man who was going to get. So when all of a sudden this this handsome young fellow shows up, it's a it's a little bit of a mystery and surprise. And I sort of liked the idea that we were sort of being dragged along. We were sort of there was a carrot sort of dangling in front of us, dragging along to see what exactly he was going to do with Osh. And, and there was all these little beats where you think he's going to go a certain way and then something happens to sort of give it pause and even at the end and as we're sort of you know fading back away from the the farmhouse you really don't know what the ultimate resolution might have been other than getting a sense that he's understanding he's accepting and deep looks like he's got a little bit of the hots for nancy right no and they do a really good job of throwing you off the trail because the entire time like lou said you're thinking he's going to be an older gentleman because Osh keeps talking about how he employs him. So you're definitely not expecting it. And even though you know immediately when he arrives in town, you're not expecting this young guy. Right. When, when it comes time for the actual party and everybody has been paired off and Nancy, she turns the staircase and here is this man that this whole time we've thought looks like somebody that would be working at Fidelity Fiduciary Bank <laughs> comes out and he looks like James Bond and you have that moment from Cinderella where the where the shoe falls off on the stairs and he puts it back on her foot clearly this is something that they drew direct influence from Cinderella but it doesn't feel like it's a rip off it still works it makes him a far more endearing character just the just in that moment, and he escorts her to the party knowing that she doesn't have anybody else. So even before you see how the film concludes, I think you see that the wheels are already starting to turn in his mind, and you already get the feeling that... I mean, look, it's a Disney movie. He's not going to evict him. But 
you know right away where he's going and what his intentions are. The other thing that they do, they do really well here, too, is that you're so invested in who is this guy? What is he going to do? Oh, look, he's being such a perfect gentleman, helping Nancy. You forget the reason that they're having this party is to pay tribute to Mrs. Hamilton. And they're going to reveal this portrait, which at this point, that was kind of where my head went was, oh, this is good. He's getting along with them. Maybe he'll do the right thing. And then you realize this reveal is coming. And, you know, there's a knot in my stomach over his reaction. Right. Is that going to be enough? Is the ugly, I don't want to call her ugly. I'm sure she's a beautiful person inside. Is the not very well painted portrait of the beautiful woman <laughs> going to be the thing that sort of sets him off? Yeah. Out of the Dutch oven, she comes. <laughs> <laughs> that that kind of is where they could have maybe brought the mystery element in was if she was in the Dutch oven the whole time and they found it. One of the interesting things, too, is that that portrait now sits in the golden horseshoe, I believe. Right. I want to see that in Haunted Mansion. <laughs> it, it would like, they fit. have the Aztec gold in Pirates of the Caribbean now. I want to see this thing in Haunted Mansion. Poor Mrs. Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't Mrs. Hamilton. <laughs> but that's a great scene, too, when Ash is going through and he's got all of these oh pictures in there. I'm not going to call them burlesque, though they are risque. Yeah, and risque. <laughs> Mariah comes out and goes... Mr. Papa, it's the Sabbath. <laughs> but but even in that scene, it's it's quick dialogue and it's very snappy how he thinks on his feet because he knows she's gonna find him and he knows that eventually he's going to leave the portrait out that she's going to pick. So he made it her idea. That was Mariah's painting. <laughs> Ash is very smart and very deliberate with everything that he does. And my her attitude changed with the one little sip of that apple ripple or whatever she was drinking <laughs> there. So I think Ash, this was a big discovery for him. So keeping a little flask under the uh, in the kitchen cupboard might be good for him. Yeah, I think you're right. Let's talk about some of these characters. I mean, we I think we fleshed out Nancy. I think we fleshed out Ash, but we haven't really at all, other than in the first scene, talked about the matriarch of the family. Margaret Carey, played by Dorothy McGuire. I think that basically what you see is what you get. And what you saw from her in the first five minutes of the movie is just how she is the entire time. I think she loves her children. I think that she's selfless. And in her own way, while Ash very much is teaching them lessons, in her own way she does, but in a less vocal sense, I suppose. I love her. I mean, to me, she kind of reminds me of a Marmee from Little Women where she's she has to be the matriarch and she's holding it down. But what's hilarious to me is that, you know, she's trying to do her best. And in all of this, almost all of the scenes that she's in, it's just chaos around her, whether it's the dog or whether it's the argument and Nancy and Julia are at each other's throats. And she's also, you know, she's dealing with enough stress in her own right. And then she's got to be the calm in the storm in all these situations. I loved the the sense of maturity and respect that she gave to her children, no matter their ages, uh, in terms of what they did and their, their good intentions and what she allowed them to do. Um, sometimes when you lose a member of the family, everybody else has to sort of rise up and, and step up. And, and even the way their interactions were, I felt that she, she allowed or even almost encouraged that to happen. Yeah, and I think that you also see in Nancy as well, uh, as we mentioned, played by Haley Mills, you know, she 
early on in the film, she writes this letter to Ash. We know it's a lie, but she's doing it with the best interests of the family in mind. It's we 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 can't afford to live here. We need to find a place we can live. We can live in that house for sixty dollars a year, and it's a place where we have all these fond memories. And I think that you do feel bad for Nancy throughout the entire film because, as you pointed out earlier, Jackie, she has to grow up very quick and make adult decisions. So even when she does these things, even when she continues to lie, although she's very thankful to Mr. Hamilton, when she when she does that and, and she does what she does to Julia, you, she's still a very endearing character. Absolutely. Now, in regards to Gillian Peter... They don't get a ton of screen time. They get just enough. Gilly's really just there to play the piano so they can launch into musical numbers until he goes and he gets the job working for Osh. But what I like about both of them is there's there's never never really a struggle for who's going to be the man of the house, right? And, and I think that that's something that gets played out in films a lot. Certainly, I think by the time this film came out, it was something you'd seen a lot. It wasn't you know this kind of new progressive way of filmmaking but they both go out and get jobs i mean it's it's all thanks to ash but they both jump in feet first and especially peter little peter is so endearing he just wants to be he wants to be one of the boys which is why he gets his hair cut and he wants to get rid of that buster brown suit and wear his overalls and it's what i love about him too is that you saw it a lot we've we've kind of coined the phrase in the 80s and the 90s, the all-knowing quip machine child actor. And that's not at all what they do here with Peter. And I feel like of all of the characters in this film, he's probably the one that's the most glossed over. And that's interesting, too, because if you're talking about the all-knowing quip machine, that's kind of the role that falls to the youngest sibling in Meet Me in St. Louis. So I'm glad that they didn't do it here. And it was very different from how they did meet me in St. Louis and that in that film the younger child is that angelic voice of hope throughout that's not to say that Peter's not because obviously he's stepping up he's pulling his weight but I'm glad that they allowed Nancy to be the heart and soul here and when you first meet Ash, Ash Popham you almost assume like in that when they're in the the foyer of the yellow house for the first time you could almost immediately come to like uh, the conclusion like, oh, well, he's clearly going to take over the role of father figure in this family that has no father. And he doesn't. He sort of, he steps back. He allows Gillian Peter to be the mature, young, maturing young men that they are. And again, be more grandfather than a replacement father for them. He's or dominant of- male figure. Yeah. Right. He's kind of like Mary Poppins in that way, because what we love now, the original, the Julie Andrews, Mary Poppins, what we love about that so much is that she's pulling all the strings. She's not getting her way necessarily, but she's giving the children the answer without explaining it explicitly. She makes them figure out the answer for themselves. And I think that that's what Ash does here. He's pulling all these strings behind the scenes, like lying to his wife and planting the portrait and all of that. But he still lets them find their own way. And exactly as you said, doesn't assume that role of a father figure. I think that Ash Popham is one of the most underappreciated, underrated and far too often overlooked characters that has ever come out of any Disney film, period. I am confident enough to say that I, I think he is one of the most overlooked in any film, live action, 
animated or otherwise. I would agree. I hate that he wasn't on my radar until now. You know, the whole time you were talking about that, all I envisioned was Burl Lives with an umbrella going, I'm Mary Poppins, y'all! <laughs> <laughs> now that would make a great... All right, we're, we're going to talk <laughs> offline. Because Mangello just had another million-dollar idea. So I'm just glad we had it here. No, we're all, on, we're all in this one together. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the music here. All I have to tell you is music and lyrics written by the Sherman Brothers. And that's basically all that you need to know. What I can't believe is that 1963, they have Summer Magic. 1964, they have Mary Poppins. The Sherman Brothers accomplished more in those two years than most successful musicians will accomplish in a lifetime. Forget musicians. Like, in two years, like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> Listen, I, I, spoiler alert, I have a huge affinity for the Sherman Brothers, um, not just for their music, but just personally having to get to know Richard. Um, I will tell you that my first recollection of this film is not seeing it for the first time. It's Ugly Bug Ball. I remember that song as a kid and then torturing my children with it when I would pick them up from school every day when they were younger, playing it over and over again. In And they're like, where is this from? I'm like, it's a Disney song. Everybody sing along with me. And they had um, no idea, still to this day, what I was talking about. And if I can, just as a, as a very quick aside, because I we didn't mention, I don't know if you forgive me if I'm jumping ahead. One of the things I loved about this film, and you and I really see it in this song, and it might have also been on the front porch, is as they were singing, they were cutting away to B-roll, for lack of a better word, of different bugs, which really, the inclusion of all these nature and animal scenes made me think like they took some footage they had from some of Walt Disney's true life adventures and cut them into summer magic. It wouldn't surprise me because we've talked a lot about what they have done for budgetary constraints. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if they had it. But it's so funny because that was a big note that I and a big takeaway that I had from watching this was for scenes like that, I'm surprised they didn't cut to animation. And because they didn't animate it, I thought it was sort of weird to like almost cut to this music video portion of all these live animals and you're not seeing the the actors singing. So I was really surprised, especially because on the heels of this comes Mary Poppins, that they didn't try to incorporate both. But I do have to say that Ugly Bug Ball was the one thing that I knew going into this movie. Your because reaction when, when this <laughs> came on last week. Well, that was it. I was I was happy that I wasn't so green on it because I had all the, the classic Disney volumes. So I knew that song from the CDs, but I always just kind of assumed that, assumed that it was from an animation. And then when I saw the Caterpillar, I was like, Sean, oh my God, is this Ugly Bug Ball? And he's like, yes, it's Burr Lives. Like, where are you? But I was I was so excited to actually see it play out. Those two astronauts that went up on Saturday, All right. they could have seen the white of your eyes from where they are now. All right. You were so shocked. And it's but it, this ended up being a huge radio hit. I think mm. it's one of the forgotten classics. It's definitely an earworm, ugly bug ball, and the message is great. But I think the most interesting 
fact about this song in particular, and then we'll talk about some of the other ones as well. Walt Disney initially hated this song. Yeah. And it wasn't until Richard Sherman explained to him, no, this is not about bugs. It's about, like the portrait, maybe not being so aesthetically pleasing on the outside, but being beautiful on the inside. And when it was broken down to him that way, he fell in love with it. But for Walt Disney, who was such a genius and such a creative mind and found interesting ways to, to teach kids lessons in films, like wash your hands in, in, Mary po- or, uh, in a, a Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and doing your chores and the things that he would you know, kind of mix into his stories and his songs. I'm surprised to hear that he needed to have it explained so explicitly to him. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that as well. Well, I think it was just the it was really just the use of the word ugly, right? It's not a very Disney word. So I get it. And even if you look at the title, you know, if you have your sort of Disney playlist, ugly bug ball sort of jumps out because it's not a word you would traditionally hear, forget in a Disney song, but certainly not in a Disney title. And when Robert actually explained to him that, you know, a caterpillar doesn't see another caterpillar as uglies. Hippos don't see other hippos as ugly. I think when Walt realized, like, hey, there's a lesson that we as humanity can maybe take from the use of the word ugly and the way it's not used in no other species uses or has a probably a, a use of the word ugly. I think that's when the light bulb went off for Walt. And to that point, had they animated it, it would have done a disservice to the lesson in the song because they would have made them all cute critters I have to assume they would have been like you know dressed up fancy and it does take away from the overall message if you do that sure yeah I had, I had the heebie-jeebies when they were holding on to those real big fuzzy caterpillars so not something I'd be jumping in, in in the front of the line to do myself either but let's let's rewind a little bit and talk about the first song that you hear flittering okay this song is something that if you listen closely, you can hear it in the parks. They play it uh, the without the lyrics. It's just uh, you know the, the score itself, right? But it's it's an earworm. So many of these songs are earworms, and I love that it also serves as a means of introducing the carries because here we are gathered around the piano. It's what you think ragtime turn of the century is going to be, but they don't. Similar to the Banks children, they don't look at their housekeepers as being below them because they're singing and they're dancing with them. And I feel like that does a lot to flesh them out as characters, even though it's, it it's never spoken about just the fact that you see it, you know exactly who these kids are. And clearly they've been, they've come from a good upbringing. Absolutely. I also, I do love the lyrics in the song. It's so classic Sherman. Uh, listen, and, and in the first, you know, the first act of the play, we get a lot of these songs and, and there was almost a moment that I was like, like I wanted more. Like, again, I, I just love the Sherman Brothers music and I loved the period music here. So in, in Summer Magic, the more Sherman for me, the better. And you don't get much more Sherman than Beautiful Beulah, right? It's, and it's, it's right on the heels of Flitterin. And where I really appreciate, while it's sort of funny that Nancy had this song that she had written on her own in celebration of this glorious occasion of I've duped us all into moving to Beulah. <laughs> What I really appreciate about it is how authentic it sounds in terms of a ragtime song, right? It doesn't sound, because you've seen, here's a perfect example, and I like the movie a lot, but The Greatest Showman. 
it is a period piece, but the music is very modern. It's very contemporary. A lot of people, listen, I'm not going to criticize it because look at the phenomenon that it became and it got let it go out of everybody's heads for a little while, which <laughs> I think people are thankful for. But what I love about this is that it is... It sounds authentic. Beautiful Beulah sounds like a song that was written in the turn of the century rather than 1963. And I think it shows the love, admiration, and respect that the Sherman brothers have for music as a whole. I think you said it perfectly. I have I have nothing to add. I mean, that's, that's the difference between that and, you know, there's no disrespect. We've, we love the work of Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, obviously, but that's where the Sherman brothers are true superstars when it comes to composition. I'm only saying this because it's happened more than once where I will be with friends or I usually like give tours on, on main street. And I, I would talk a lot about summer magic and the influence, not just Osh Popham, but even the, the Emporium used to be decorated much differently and really gave you a sense that it was truly Osh Popham store. And there was a story. And when beautiful Beulah would sometimes appropriately just sort of come on, in the background music, I was like, oh, this is beautiful Beulah from, and 99% of the time people go, well, who, who's Beulah? Like, I don't know that Disney character. I'm like, no, no, Beulah's not a person. It's a place. You don't hear, you know, a lot of songs about a place. Um, and because there's no lyrics, there's no context for most people the first time they hear it. The next song on the soundtrack is the title song, Summer Magic. What I love most about this and what I think makes it one of the most, if not the most, special songs in the film. Because Ugly Bug Ball is great. It was a huge hit for Disney. Flitterin is an earworm. You hear it in the park. But what's special about the song Summer Magic is that it, I think it transcends generations. Because it's immediately relatable. I think we all have our own version of what Summer Magic is from adolescence. Growing up, we had a place upstate I used to go when I was a kid, and I remember sitting out and, and, and riding my bike and swimming in the lake and going fishing and having a campfire where my dad would throw the charcoal on the barbecue. And that's, a, that's where I go back to when I think about summer as a kid. And because I think it's something that's so universal, I think it's something everybody can relate to. I love that they gave the matriarch the title track here. I think she sings it perfectly. The only thing that feels a bit disconnected is like what I said before, they're cutting to this music video of sorts with all these animals. And where it would have done a disservice to Ugly Bug Ball and the message that it's trying to send, I feel like it would have benefited here um, because that's what makes something like Bambi so amazing is to animate the animals and make it look so realistic. And especially because in this sequence, it's very dark on that front porch and where they cut away to the animals, it looks like it's either dawn or dusk. There's still a little light there. So it doesn't feel like it's a rest of the part of the scene and the lighting is not matching at all. Moving on down the track list for the soundtrack of Summer Magic is Pink of Perfection. Now, Julia's not there for any of this, but this is the song where... Gilly and Nancy are picking fun at Julia's appearance, which, of course, their their description of her as a character is completely inaccurate, and Peter calls them on it as soon as Julia gets to the house. The lyrics are at times vile. They're tongue-in-cheek. 
the the child actors seem like they really had a blast with it. And I think that this is a song where you sit there and you go, because of how tongue-in-cheek and how creative it is, it's very much quintessential Sherman Brother. I love, too, that... At this point, you know, you, you hit on it before that we haven't seen Julia yet. So this is just reinforcing and repainting this horrible picture that they're setting up for her. You know, if you read the lyrics of Pink of Perfection out of context, it's a very it seems like it's a very, very mean song that she's a dainty baboon. She's got a chin <laughs> like a prune. She's got the charm of a moose. You're like. Sweet little Richard Sherman wrote these lyrics, but again, you've got to take it in context uh, and the way and, and the way it's being sung. Richard Sherman, I'm so glad that you brought him up because on the front porch, as it turns out, and I I looked for confirmation of this. I I only have like one or two places I read this, so I don't I I can't confirm it as being absolutely true, but I believe. There is some validity to it. Supposedly, of all of the songs that Richard Sherman wrote, this is the favorite of his songs. I've read that as well. I don't know how much truth there is. Maybe maybe Lou has some insight on that one. I, I know he has says that it, that you know it's it's like picking a favorite child, but it is definitely one of his favorites. I think this one is the most authentic to its time period, and I love how the scene is set. You know, Lou talked about the the B-roll with the wilderness, but just watching them all sit on that front porch, and it's such a a peaceful night. The setting is beautiful. I think it's Burl Ives at his best, and I I think it's probably the best song in the movie. I would definitely agree, and I like the placement as far as pacing of the film because it's a great place to take a break and let it breathe and not worry about the financial struggles for a second and not having Nancy and Julia at each other's throats and there's no competition there anymore and you can just sit back and enjoy it. Honestly, forget everything that we know about Carousel of Progress. If this was Carousel of Progress, I'd be fine with that, just sitting and watch this song play out. And and I think the scene is just, you know, it's one of the ones that, that for me elicited a sense of longing right for that simpler time of after dinner the family is together and you just sit out on the front porch singing songs i'm not sure that happens a lot nowadays certainly not in my house where everybody sort of goes their separate ways and gets on their electronic devices and you know their head down so when you talk about you know does the movie hold up and the scenes hold up like this scene absolutely holds up because of this idealized vision of what you know, I said at the very beginning, uh, simpler times and, and simpler life would be like. The last song on the soundtrack is Feminine, which let's talk about this for a second. I think the song, I do think it's innocent. I think certainly at its in the time that it was written, it was innocent. I think for the time period the film is set in, it's innocent. But if you believe what you hear in that, if West Side Story is having certain songs taken out or rewritten for more modern contemporary adaptations, I don't know that this song holds up like the rest of them do. I'll give you that period-wise, it is accurate. That was the mentality back then, and we see it, you know, we were talking about it before when Julia says, but I am stupid. With that being said, it's unwatchable. For me, I was sitting there cringing. I hate that this 
came from the Sherman brothers. I, I just wanted to take the books that Nancy's using for balance and smack her with him. It, it, it just made me so angry. And I don't want to keep Lou here because I, I will go on a <laughs> feminist rant all day long about how bad the number is. But uh, yeah, this was just the weakest point of this movie for me. So if I knew you guys better, I was going to go, oh my God, this is my favorite song in the whole thing, <laughs> just to see your face. <laughs> well, I'm not saying that, by the way. I'm just no, I'm no. completely joking. <laughs> Again, you know, look, it's it, it, it's not excusing it, but it, like so many other things, it was a different time and, and, you know, what was quote unquote acceptable at that time, at that time in the 60s, talking about that time, you know, ages earlier, um, certainly would not necessarily fly today. I will say this. I mean, when this eventually does get to Disney Plus, I think it's important for kids to watch. And I hope it's not something that they would cut, you know, for the sake of putting this film out, because it doesn't agree with what we believe now and how far women have come in that regard. But um, I think it's important for kids to see. And I think it, it's definitely something that can be teachable. Well, here's the thing. If they didn't cut the Siamese cats out of the original animated version of Lady and the Tramp, I think this go. song is probably pretty safe um, if, if you compare the two of them together. But I want to point out Wendy Turner in this scene who plays Lolly Joy. She is so uncomfortable in this entire scene, uncomfortable in that hideous dress that her mother made her, uncomfortable with the fact that that dress is then stripped off of her by Julia and Nancy, and then uncomfortable with the fact that this girl who has clearly never left the general store or the yellow house is now getting these sort of like prep school lessons on femininity. Like She really did play it off well. She was a great sport about it. I will say this. They did do it better than Little Women because in Little Women, they're trying to marry Meg off and they really primp her up and, you know, they put her in a corset and everything. So I'm glad they didn't take that route here. So with that being said, final thoughts. I'm going to let our guest go first. Yes. Oh, my God. The pressure on me. Mr. Mike. Uh, <laughs> so, look, you know, I was really happy that you reached out to me for this because it probably isn't one that on a Friday night I would have been like, yeah, I need to go sit down and watch. I would watch Endgame like for the 9,000th time. So I, I appreciate the the gift of the invitation because it brought back something and watching it with, with older eyes now that I really enjoyed. You get to look at these films from different perspectives and different angles and, you know, some of the messaging that you that you take away and you know this this film in a lot of ways is about people who are vastly different you know coming together um, from the lifestyle that the carries were used to to this very rural as opposed to cosmopolitan type lifestyles they have to sort of come to grips with that internally and they and they uh, are able to instantly be able to form friendships with uh, people in this very secluded town um miss you we, we were talking about before about how ash popham is this just consummate optimist and, and so incredibly positive and his wife is so pessimistic yet they're able to come together and they make it work um and and how the sort of town is able to sort of have so many different aspects that that come together that work well and it did it made me on a personal level think about you know not like i live in the middle of a big city, but the lifestyle that we lead here versus what life is like in some of these simpler, more rural areas. And it did, it left me with a sense of longing for 
a simpler time and maybe less technology and yeah, like having a party in the barn and the whole town comes together. And some of the things that I saw there were not just quintessential Disney and Walt and Sherman brothers, but you know, you, you ask if the, if the film holds up, I think some of the, the symbolism there uh, and the messaging and the takeaways there um, absolutely still do. I know at least for me. You know, we said at the top of the show, I had not seen this movie and I really wish that I had grown up on it. Um, it's certainly something that I have an appreciation for in terms of the story and the music and Walt's ideals. And I, I feel that's something, you know, I certainly appreciate it now, but I wish it was something, you know, that like Mary Poppins that I grew up on and lessons that you take away from that movie. I wish I had had it earlier on. That's not to say that I don't appreciate it now. I certainly do appreciate it as a classic film. And um, it's unfortunately something that they don't really make films like this anymore. I mean, that's that's a given. But forget even Disney movies. You don't really see these slice-of-life films anymore. And... You know, we talked about it that it said on the cover of the DVD that this is a mystery. And do I feel like there were a couple of plot points missing and a couple of things that would have developed the story a little bit more? Yes, absolutely. But you don't care because it is so wholesome and it is just so fun to watch. And I wish that they were making things like this again, a movie where you can kind of just there's very low conflict and you can just kind of let it breathe. But I don't think that that's something, especially like with what Lou said, if you're watching the Avengers franchises, it's not something that kids are going to be able to relate to now because there's not a lot of conflict and there's not a lot of, I mean, there's certainly not a lot of action. So I hope that younger generations now can appreciate this for what it is. I agree. I think for all of the reasons that that you and Lou mentioned, I think that the movie does hold up because I do think the messages are timeless. I think the music, with the exception of Feminine, I think the, the music is timeless. I think it all holds up. Um, I think the cast is great. I think the story... Listen, the story is what the story is. It's not some big epic adventure. It's not a Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's not Endgame. It's not Ghostbusters. It's, it's sweet. The, uh, the movie is sweet. And that's not a term I think I've ever used on this show before. But I think that this movie is so unique and so different from so many other films that Walt Disney made because, I mean, yes, he did a lot of animation and they, were all, they all had musical numbers and he did Mary Poppins. But the feel of this and the feel of Mary Poppins are so vastly different. I think you're in gray London versus being out in the sun in Maine. It's just so, everything about it tonally is so different and so unique from any other film that they made. I think they tried to capture some of that again in later films, like Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, like in Pete's Dragons, Pete's Dragons specifically because of the setting, and I think that it's this is so much better a film than Pete's Dragon, because I was not a, I didn't love that film. Um, yeah, sorry, sorry, Lou. I'll, listen, um, the boathouse is on me, and so I just bought his apology. Um, but you know why, though? I think because... I think a movie like Pete's Dragon was a little too wholesome, too silly. 
They, I think they tried to be a little too sweet in the late 1970s when movies like that weren't being made. I think movies like, I think that's why that movie wasn't as well received. I think that's why it has a cult following now. This movie was made in a time where these kind of movies were getting made, like an Easter parade, like a Meet Me in St. Louis, where they were very sweet and wholesome. Meet Me in St. Louis was way before. But, but I'm saying this was in the window. And it was restrained just enough. So I do think the movie holds up. Do I think the movie should be remade? Absolutely not. I think it's as good a movie as you can make. I think they told the story as good as they can make it. Of all the films they're going to remake, I don't think this is at the top of the list, so we don't have to worry about it anyway. But this would be one where if they, if they made an announcement on, say, D23 down the line... Disney announces Summer Magic to be remade straight to Disney+. Plus. I will go so far as to say I would actually be disappointed with that decision. I agree. This is so one of a kind. And even with the, the films that you listed that you compared it to, the takeaways and the lessons in all of them, they're so much more overt. This teaches you, but it's a lot more subtle. And Lou, don't worry, I am going to deal with him for his blasphemy against <laughs> Pete's Dragon once the microphones are off. Yeah, uh, so Disney's about to announce Summer Magic 2, uh, Popham's Revenge, coming out in 2021. <laughs> so. <laughs> but we're interested in knowing what you all have to say about it. Have you seen this movie? Do you love this movie? Do you think it should be remade? Do you think it could stand a remake? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. And a huge thank you a thousand times to our special guest, Lou Mangello from WDW Radio for coming on today and discussing this film. Lou, you have an open invitation to come back whenever you want. Um, and not that people don't know where to find you, but if you'd like to let people know where you can be found on the uh, interwebs of the world. Well, thank you first again for the invitation. This was a lot of fun. Um, you guys truly know your movie stuff, and uh, it, it certainly is is evidenced in this one. And I appreciated the opportunity to go back and revisit one that uh, I think truly is a Disney classic. Um, you can find all the stuff that I do on the Disney side of things at WDW Radio, and uh, you can find the other stuff that I do at LouMangelo.com, and I'm at LouMangelo on all the social. Well, look, I said I would get I would get the boathouse to buy back your affection for Pete's Dragon. So we're coming down to Disney in October. I'll get the boathouse. You provide the Burl Ives records, and we'll sing on the front porch. You provide the singing. I'll provide the eating, and we'll just call it even <laughs> because nobody needs to hear me sing. Trust me. I'm down with that. Again, a thousand times, thank you so much, Lou Mangello, for joining us on Monorail Radio today. Thank you guys so much. And thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to subscribe to Monoreal Radio on your podcast platform of choice. And, of course, to follow us on that social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and now TikTok uh, at Monoreal Radio. And you can also check out the newly relaunched monorealradio.com. So thank you all so much again. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.